Hello, on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to thank you for joining us for part three of this podcast series focused on improving perioperative care entitled Best Practices in the Pharmacologic Reversal of Neuromuscular Blockade. Today's learning objective is to utilize appropriate best practices in the pharmacologic reversal of neuromuscular blockade. With me today is Drew Riddle and Ian Makey. Drew is a nurse anesthetist in Texas. Welcome, Drew. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you uh, inviting me to be here. It's good to be part of the panel. Great. And with us today also is Ian Makey, uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon that I get the opportunity to work with frequently at my institution. Welcome, Ian. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. All right. To get us started today, I wanted to step back and kind of talk broadly and, and ask each of you to share your thoughts on the importance of multidisciplinary communication interoperatively. I try to think about the, the bridging communication between our two specialties. And if we could start with, with you, Ian, what, how do you view the, the role and the importance of, of open lines of communication during the course of an operation? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ross. The anesthesiologist and, and the surgeon, although it seems like there's a barrier, there's the, the drape, but we're literally like a few feet apart from each other. So it's not like it's, you know, it, it's a hard thing. We just, you know, talking back and forth, I would say during the course of the operation, it's usually at the beginning and towards the end where uh, it's, you know, most needed. I would say, you know, for us, a majority of what I do is lung surgery. And so that, comes up with uh, lung isolation and if it's not ideal or you know patients have emphysema and the lungs not deflating well and then you know those situations where you insufflate the chest and you can get hypotension uh, those are important important uh, times to have good communication regarding the neuromuscular blockade and uh, having uh, patients uh, still during the operation. There's certain times when it's uh, more important. A lot of lung resections nowadays are done minimally invasively, and so we're particularly sensitive during those operations if the patients are moving. You know, uh, if, if the diaphragm's moving, it, that would almost impossible to do the operation. For, for most of those cases, uh, you know, I don't think about it because you guys do a, a nice job, but they need to be, you know, completely paralyzed and uh, even then you know sometimes if we are dissecting very centrally near the hilum or sometimes dividing the vagus branches going to the lung we can still see little little movement but uh, I would say those are the most important times uh, to have the good communication and to have that full full paralysis okay yeah uh, thanks for sharing that. Drew, how about you? From, from your end, from the other side of the drapes, what do you, how do you view uh, multidisciplinary communication interoperatively and the importance of it? Yeah, it's, it's critical. I mean, there's, there's plenty of studies, as I'm sure most of the listeners have, have had an opportunity to read about when communication breaks down, in, especially in the perioperative period and, and even more specifically intraop, you know, we, we can have outcomes that are less than desirable for our patients. And it may actually contribute to, to some safety concerns for our patients. I think about this kind of on a continuum of communication where there's the sort of the intra-op um, logistics of um, what, what's going on right now. I, I'm struggling perhaps hemodynamically and managing the patient. The surgeon uh, might be struggling uh, with an with aspect of the surgical procedure, but, but I back up just a little bit from that and, and think about kind of the, the planning on the front end. And I think admittingly, we all probably don't do as good a job as we would all like to do in having sort of a let's sit down, even if it's 
if it's, you know, a, a minute or two on the front end and say, you know, hey, are, are you, what are you expecting in this case? Are, you know, do you think there's going to be more more blood loss, for example, than than I would have normally anticipated? And, and most of us in anesthesia, while we may have certain areas in which we focus, we we are sort of a, a almost a jack of all trades where we, we do anesthesia for lots and lots of different kinds of surgical procedures. And especially if you haven't done something in, in a bit of time, it may be a, a really good opportunity to have a, a quick reminder here. You know, the neuromuscular blockade, a great example. This is, this is a case in which the patient needs to be deeply, deeply blocked. And I need to know that on the front end so I can plan my care and, and uh, you know, intra-op and post-op management. So all, all of that to say, it's critically important. We probably, in, in the hustle and bustle of day-to-day, trying to, to take care of patients, don't do it as well as we should, but uh, we certainly need to. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Drew, particularly that part of, of covering multiple different specialties and perhaps stepping into an environment that you don't normally uh, practice anesthesia in. I think having those open lines of communication at the start, preoperative planning, and then uh, continual discussion about where you're at in the in the case. And for the times we are able to work with a surgical team, maybe more frequently, it, it, it is neat to see the efficiencies and improvements in patient safeties that occur. I know my team works with Dr. Makey's team very frequently, and so you get to see a lot of the same familiar faces. And we've got a pretty good idea on when things are getting close to wrapping up. And that, that's got a big impact on our reversal options. You know, if, if we can, we can time it and know that they're closing and no longer need the patient to be as paralyzed, we can let that patient spontaneously recover to a shallow level of blockade. In that case, we would have the option to use either neostigmine or sugamidex. Certainly, if we, if the, the operation ends sooner and we haven't recovered to a shallow level, then this is an instance where we're going to have to use sugamidex to reverse as that's the only drug that's available to, to reverse uh, moderate and deep levels of blockade consistently. The other thing that I think comes from working a little bit of familiar, familiarity, working with the same team over and over is I, we can pick up on when the, some of the nonverbal communication that happens too. I know, for instance, in Dr. Makey's room, when, when the, the, the music gets turned down, then that's turning into a more critical moment and we're going to have to uh, be a little more vigilant and pay attention to different things and some of the nonverbal communication that happens. And that just goes along with working with people consistently and, and pretty frequently. Ian, I want to pick your brain about a, a case that you shared with me a couple of weeks ago that you had. If I remember correctly, there was a tumor in the left side of the chest that was near the phrenic nerve. And while I was not covering that case, a colleague of mine was, and there were some interesting implications on neuromuscular blockade. Do you mind discussing that a little bit with us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll keep it um you know, vague for patient privacy reasons, but the patient had an extremely large tumor at the apex of his left chest. And during the course of the dissection, it was difficult to tell if we had injured the phrenic nerve or not. And uh, so once we had finally gotten everything out, I kind of wanted to know because if it was injured, I could do a diaphragm plication. But if it wasn't, then, you know, obviously we didn't need to. And, uh, and it's always just a pain to go back later and do a diaphragm plication. So, <laughs> so I asked the anesthesiologist to reverse the patient and kind of lighten up on the sedation. And after about five minutes, we started seeing the left diaphragm moving. The patient was breathing spontaneously. So it was, uh, you know, it totally changed what, what we were able to do. It made me feel so much better because, it, you know, as, as try as you might, we, we traced the phrenic nerve up very high, but it was, you know, we had taken the pleura and it was very hard to see. And, 
So in that situation, it was a great help to know that uh, that we had done it and had not injured the phrenic nerve. So, I, you know, that was actually the first time I had ever done that. But, you know, there there are some times when, when that occurs, you know, with mediastinal masses and things like that, uh, thymectomies. Yeah, one example that, that was really useful. And, yeah, I would just say overall with, you know, reversal is I remember in training, uh, which is now over 10 years ago, that something I just sort of forgot. We would always have to wait around for patients to, to wake up. I remember waiting in the ORs for 20 minutes for patients to wake up and start breathing spontaneously. The, the, being able to reverse patients makes the turnover so much faster because of that. So uh, just, just one other example there. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Ian. Pretty neat story, I think, that demonstrates some of the versatility that our pharmacologic agents have in, in being able to facilitate something like that. Uh, Drew, have you encountered anything like that where you've had to, you know, maybe reverse something abruptly or had to, had to take into some special considerations, neuromuscular blockade management, as it relates to the impact of the, the course of the operation? Yeah, we in my practice, we do a large amount of head and neck cancer surgery, some of these, uh, you know, really big flaps and, and uh, free flaps and neck dissections, often actually in, in combination with our thoracic uh, surgery colleagues that are doing mediastinal work, et cetera. And not, not too terribly long ago, we had a patient deeply paralyzed. They were working in the thorax, but also in the neck. And um, the otolaryngologist re- recognized that there could have been a potential for some nerve damage uh, based on some al- altered anatomy. The patient had a bunch of radiation. And so we had a patient in a uh, in a fairly deep level of neuromuscular blockade and, and really to assess function to determine what the next steps were going to be for that surgery. Rapid reversal of that was critical. And we did. We were able to use the Sigamidex. And as Ian said, you know, within within a very short amount of time, we were able to do some evaluation to determine that indeed the nerve was intact and what the surgeon thought was some nerve damage turned out to be some, unfortunately, just some, some scar tissue, I think, from from uh, uh, long-standing radiation injury, and it did change the outcome for that for that patient and allowed us to intraoperatively make the right decision. The other outcome is you either kind of guess, which is never good, right, or you you hope for the best, and then you know patient could have p- potentially some airway really serious airway concerns if if that wasn't recognized intraop. So yeah, it's you know it's kind of rare. I think we probably all could think about times from the anesthesia side of things when we may have wanted to do that. Having been in practice for 20-something years, I remember times when I wish I could have done that intraoperatively, but with without the access to Sigamidex with neostigmine, it was impossible to do. And so, you know, we, we start telling jokes in the OR to wait wait a little while and, and pass the time until the patient gets to a level of spontaneous recovery that is then reversible. So, yeah. Sure. The other instance that I was thinking about while you were sharing your story, Drew, was, you know, in a lot of our head and neck uh, cases, we'll we'll have, you know, some kind of neuromonitoring. Even in our neurosurgery, we'll have neuromonitoring in which we're going to be monitoring, maybe it's the function of the diaphragm, maybe it's just using motor evoked potentials. And there, I remember training, there was this dogma that you had to give that patient succinylcholine to intubate um, so that they would be able to monitor subsequently in the mechanism of action, the neuromuscular blockade would wear off. I've had a number of patients, particularly the young, healthy males, a muscular patient. When you talk with them about their past anesthetics, they say it was great, but I felt like I was beat up. I was sore all over. 
And I think we underappreciate the occurrence of ductinylcholine-induced myalgias uh, as it relates to quality of recovery. And, you know, outside of the rapid sequence indication, I see not a whole lot of use for succinylcholine these days. We know that it has lots of side effects as a, as a lengthy side effect profile. And I think if uh, we're trying to avoid some of the succinylcholine-induced myalgias, which can be upwards to 50% of patients, using a small intubating dose of ROC and then using an appropriate dose of uh, neostigmine or sugamidex, depending on the level of blockade, can help you facilitate monitoring in these cases in which the, at least the old dogma was we're going to give sucks at the beginning of this case and, and just stay away from any uh, non-depolarizing agents. That's been, um, it's a really good point and a, and a piece of practice that I've, I've changed over the last several years, exactly that. Yeah, the, and you know, it's interesting with the, with the myalgias. I, I have a really good friend of mine who had that happen just a few weeks ago and he, he was literally limping around for a week. And until you sort of see these patients, I think we do really underappreciate the, or the myalgias that they can get. Sure. Shifting gears. Drew, I wanted to ask you, how do you try to stay in tune with the surgical team as far as it relates to maintaining an appropriate level of blockade? Is it a familiarity thing? You kind of know what they're expecting, or is it an overt conversation? I think it's probably a bit of both. To your point earlier, you know, when I'm working with a service line or a particular surgeon even that uh, that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with and have worked with a lot. There, there is a lot of nonverbals and just sort of expectations that unless, unless we talk about it and it's different than the status quo, we're going to assume it's status quo. But I have found in particular of late, uh, and, and when I say of late, maybe in the last five or six years, and I've really begun to understand better the literature around neuromuscular blockade and neuromuscular blockade management, that I'm, I'm actually asking questions to the surgeon much more frequently. Is this patient appropriately paralyzed? Are you struggling because perhaps the patient's pushing or moving? And, you know, thinking about like big laparoscopic robotic cases where we know we need to have them deeply paralyzed, I, I would assert that even with the most sensitive monitors possible, we still don't always recognize or see what the surgeons are seeing and, and perhaps struggling with as they're operating. And so I've I've become a little bit more open about, you know, from my side of things, it looks like this patient's deeply paralyzed, but you tell me, does, does, does this patient need additional uh, neuromuscular blockade to facilitate whatever it is that you're, that you're trying to accomplish here? And, I, and I'll say that that has started to permeate, at least in my practice, across, across our, our department where we really have mo much more of an open communication, quite frankly, because now I have the ability to keep a patient perhaps more deeply paralyzed because I don't need a 30 or 45 minute or up to an hour spontaneous recovery period if I'm, if I'm choosing not to use neostigmine to antagonize or block. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely had a, an impact on practice, having new reversal agents. I don't even know if I'd call them new anymore, but having alternative reversal agents. Ian, you said something earlier that I wanted to circle back to, and it related to diaphragm moving. And can you share with us the impact that that has on your ability to operate uh, during thoracic surgery? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, there's some more critical portions of the operations that uh, you have to be careful with, and you don't want patient movement or diaphragm movement, particularly if you're, you know, near the pulmonary vessels, uh, stapling, 
is an important time dissection along if you're near the phrenic nerve for whatever reason. So, so all more critical times where you need the deeper paralysis. True. I was going to see if you, with the patient positioning at the beginning of the case, I always thought the train of four was supposed to be up somewhere around the face or neck. And uh, I learned from you guys that it's supposed to be on the hand. So I didn't know if you wanted to com- comment on that when you're doing the positioning and you know, where the arm is and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it seems like it would be such a simple thing. We, we take patients to the operating room all day, every day. We put them on the operating room, you know, bed, and, and we get them ready for surgery, prepped and draped in the usual sterile fashion that is always dictated in every note in America or probably around the world. But that prepped idea and putting them in the right position, I, I think, I mean, I'm sure we all have probably more than we want to admit times when you're like, oh, gosh, no, you wanted the arms tucked or arms out or what what, ha- what have you. So, yeah, I mean, in an, in an ideal world, we would have access to monitoring the, at, at the hand, and we, we would need to be able to see and watch the thumb. That's not always possible, and depending on the piece of equipment you have doing the monitoring, there's going to be times when it's not useful. So the next best option or the maybe the more, I don't want to say next best, but more feasible option might be on the on the face. But there are going to be times when when that happens, if we're doing it correctly, where at the end of the procedure, once we're able to undrape the patient and and get access to the arm again, that we would move that monitor down to the arm and and do sort of a final assessment of where we are based on assessment at the thumb rather than what we're seeing at the face. So, yeah, it's it's been interesting. We've been really pushing that in in my practice and asking surgeons, you know, is it critical that the arm is tucked or is that just sort of that would it would be nice but yet it's not going to really impact surgical exposure or whatnot if we could at least leave one arm out and 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 interestingly there's actually at least what i've seen and correct me if if i'm wrong but there's been a lot of times when tucking both arms is sort of a matter of, of habit or history but not necessarily a requisite for successfully operating on the patient so yeah yeah i would say most most of it's habit (laughs) <laughs> uh, obviously sometimes you, you need them tucked but uh yeah i think it's all right habit. all right so when i'm working with somebody tomorrow and they want to tuck both arms i'm going to say ian makey said you're probably doing this out of habit but in all seriousness i do want to refer our listeners back to one of the other podcasts in the series that a conversation i had with deb Falk on monitoring and the difference in uh, monitoring at the hand versus monitoring at the face and i think that Perception that monitoring at the face is routine that, Ian, you mentioned is pretty widespread, but our ASA guidelines have defined the definition of recovery is at the hand. It's because it's one of the last muscle groups to recover, so we're trying to set the threshold as high as possible. So if the hand's recovered, then some of the other muscles that we care about, the pharyngeal adductors, the diaphragm, have hopefully recovered at that instant. So at our institution, we have acceleromyography available everywhere, and we have electromyography available in rooms where arms are frequently tucked, like the robotic rooms. And so we'll use EMG when the arms are tucked, and they have to be tucked because, uh, as a reminder to our listeners, EMG works when the arms are tucked because you're measuring action potentials, whereas acceleromyography or AMG is measuring the actual acceleration of the thumb. Drew, you're at a practice, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have predominantly peripheral nerve stimulators at this point and just a couple of quantitative monitors available. So you guys are, you'll have the, the peripheral nerve stimulator on the face during the case when the arms are tucked. And at the end, you're trying to get it back on the hand to confirm recovery. Is that, is that yeah. kind of current standard? 
Yeah, ideally, and and I'm you know I would I'd be lying if I said we did that every single time uh, you know probably airing airing the airing our ways here dirty laundry. But ideally, and that really is being being pushed that in the absence of some sort of quantitative monitor where we can get a train of four ratio, yeah, we're we're moving it uh, hopefully yeah. from the face to the hand. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I think pops up from something that you said, Ian, was, you know, needing a deep level of blockade for the diaphragm. And I, I know from trying different monitors and getting folks used to trying to get my department used to monitoring at the hand throughout the duration of the operation, it requires a deep level of blockade to paralyze the diaphragm. There is a high density of these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors at the diaphragm. So you need a lot of drug on board to keep that diaphragm paralyzed. It's one of the first muscles that comes back and so if you're used to monitoring at the face and redosing your neuromuscular blockade every time the train of four count returns to, let's say, one, and now you're monitoring at the hand, you're going to be having to use a different pattern of neurostimulation. This is when we're going to use something like post-tetanic count to try to help guide and redose and maintain our level of blockade. Because at the hand, you could have a train of four count of zero, but you look on your ventilator and you see the diaphragm moving. You can see the it on the capnograph. And so there's just that shift, that, that that conversion that you have to make in your head when you're transitioning from monitoring at the face to monitoring at the hand. Shifting gears, Ian, I wanted to ask you about, I know I've personally done a number of cases on patients with significant pulmonary disease, and they've got pre-existing pulmonary disease, and now they're coming for thoracic surgery, which to me the uh, alarms are going off that this patient is at risk for postoperative complications. Can you talk to me about how you approach this patient perioperatively and the things you try, might try to do to optimize them preoperatively so they have a good postoperative course? The LVRS, lung volume reduction surgery population, is a very fragile population. They basically are lung transplant candidates, but we you know, try to use a not a transplant way to, to improve their breathing where we resect the most diseased portion of their lung. So those patients, I mean, I encourage everybody to exercise and, and try to lose weight, almost everybody, anybody who's overweight to lose weight prior to surgery uh, for better or for worse. But these patients have several factors that, you know, increase their risk of complications afterwards. One is they have severe, I mean, to be an LVRS candidate, you already have to have very severe emphysema, usually with the FEV1 and DLCO in the 20% range. And you're improving that function, but it's not like a transplant. You're, you're improving it maybe 10 to 20%. So they can retain carbon dioxide afterwards. And then, you know, just just because of maybe some narcotics. And then if you, they have any muscle weakness on top of that, then you're going to be at high risk of reintubation post-op. You know, other reasons for them to have difficulties is air leaks. That's sort of the major complication after that surgery. And then the last is pain control. Even though we're doing most of them minimally invasively, if they have, you know, if they're splinting, if they're having trouble taking deep breaths, then it's all set up. So if you can eliminate having the neuromuscular weakness from that, it's, it's, it's extremely important because I on those patients, I do not want them getting reintubated. You're you're putting positive pressure back on those already fragile staple lines and air leaks. If they develop an air leak, it it changes their post-op recovery from a day or two to weeks. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty critical in those patients. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Drew. If if you had a patient that you were looking up, maybe a thoracic surgery, and 
and you saw that they had, you know, a 40 pack year history, we're on four liters of oxygen around the clock. How, how are you going to approach that patient? Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of those folks, right? Life expectancy is going up, but maybe our life choices aren't keeping up with that. And, you know, I think Ian brought up a, a really good point about those patients that are getting thoracic surgery in the face of severe lung disease. But we know folks with these really critical lung diseases are presenting for non-thoracic surgery as well. And so I kind of uh, approach this from a what's the state of their lung disease preoperatively? What is, you know, we risk risk calculations and risk stratification is is paramount. But uh, most of the time, we're going to have to proceed with the surgery and ensuring that we've optimized the possibility of them having zero pulmonary implications from the anesthetic. We know they're going to be there regardless of what we do, but of of course, limiting opiates, ensuring that these patients have nothing that's going to cause respiratory depression. And then probably most critical to that is appropriate intraoperative neuromuscular blockade management and coupled with reversal and then postoperative assessment of residual neuromuscular blockade. And I think one of the things we've we've highlighted this in the series of podcasts already, but I think it's important to to reiterate, and that is residual postoperative neuromuscular blockade, patients that have some degree of neuromuscular blockade don't always present in the same way. It can be quite subtle and in the young, healthy 19 or 20 year old college athlete, it may be clinically insignificant, but in the 40, 50, 70, 90 year old with the 40 pack year history and, and pre existing pulmonary disease, my guess is a, a list of comorbidities associated with that as well. It, it can be absolutely devastating for those patients. And so, yeah, from a, from a management perspective, I, I think we need to be even more heightened in our vigilance on intraoperative care for those folks and really making sure that they're well antagonized at the end. Yeah, just to echo those comments, Drew and Ian, you know, this is a patient population that deserves the utmost vigilance, and we have to avoid leaving them with any degree of residual weakness because, like you said, Drew, the, the young college athlete is probably going to be fine, and the chances of them having a complication related to residual weakness is, is very low. But this patient with significant pulmonary disease, we have to avoid what would, in my view, be an iatrogenic complication from inappropriate neuromuscular blockade management. So we have to make sure they're strong. My personal way to wake these patients up, I like to get them over to the stretcher, sit them up. We've done a number of multimodal pain relief things and then making sure they're wide awake and then ensuring their neuromuscular function has been adequately restored with a, with an objective monitor. Another patient population that I think is kind of similar to this, the patient with myasthenia gravis. And whether they're coming for, you know, a thymectomy, which I know Ian does a number of, of thymectomy patients and has a large myasthenic practice, or if it's just a patient who happens to have myasthenia coming for an unrelated surgery, I think this patient population warrants some similar considerations as well. And then, Ian, while I've got you here, I wanted to pick your brain on the same kind of question as the last one, how you approach the myasthenic patient. Are there differences with how you approach them versus, let's say, the patient with significant pulmonary disease? Yeah, I think this patient population is interesting. Usually, they're a little bit younger, so you know they're they're not as fragile as some of the uh, lung patients. But what's interesting is that their myasthenia, you know, postoperatively they can have a myasthenia crisis, which I'm not sure if it's exactly from the anesthesia or, or, or from the the paralysis, but that crisis mimics 
neuromuscular weakness. I mean, that's what myasthenia is. It's just interesting, in that, again, in the postoperative period and the recovery area, if they're struggling, is this a myasthenia crisis, which would require PLEX and IVIG, or is this just inadequate reversal? And so if you're very confident that it's not inadequate reversal, then can more quickly put them in the ICU, watch them, or if they're struggling quite a lot, then initiate the, the PLEX. So I think that's a, a it's an interesting decision point right there, which is, is gonna, it's going to be hard to distinguish clinically uh, unless you're just quite confident uh, with, with your reversal. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to ask Drew the same question, but before I toss him the baton, I want to point out to our listeners that that was the, we're, you know, 20 something minutes into the podcast and we've hit our first instance of the surgeon blaming anesthesia for a complication. (laughs) Um, But I I would, our literature will say, oh, you know, you could have a myasthenic crisis, just some, I'll, I'll turn it around and say the stress of surgery. So is it the stress of surgery or is it the anesthesia causing the myasthenic crisis? But Regardless, uh, I, I did want to pick your brain, Drew, on how you approach that. Yeah, they're certainly complex patients. You know, there's there's probably a, a series of board review kind of questions in anesthesia, and you know, you know, one of them is going to be something around management of the myasthenic patient. You know, the other is like difficult airway and malignant hyperthermia, of course. But what we know about folks with uh, myasthenia is that they are unpredictably sensitive to non-depolarizing agents. And what happened in the myasthenic you took care of last month may be completely different than the myasthenic you take care of this month based on the sort of continuum of their disease, right? The recommendations tell us that to the extent possible, let's avoid altogether using neuromuscular blocking agents. It's not always feasible. And so we know then we're going to have to alter our dose of non-depolarizer potentially uh, in order to obtain, you know, reasonable amounts of neuromuscular blockade that are appropriate. But some of the literature is pointing to, and in fact, there, there's been a study, I, I think it was within the last month or so, earlier earlier in 2023, that specifically called out if, if Sigamidex is not available, then neuromuscular blockade in the myasthenic patient should be completely avoided. That's a pretty profound statement, but it only takes one or two myasthenic patients that you take care of to understand why clinically that's such an important and maybe a bit provocative, but at the end of the day, uh, life-saving for for these folks. And Ian, to to your point on the what is the differential, right? I've taken care of this myasthenic patient. They have some what appears to be weakness in the recovery room. If we've eliminated everything else like opiates and benzos and volatile anesthetic, for example, um, we, we do still have this decision point of is it is it drug-induced neuromuscular weakness that they haven't been reversed from, or is this a my, myasthenic crisis? And, and maybe it is both, but we know the treatment of those two things are radically different. And if we don't treat them well and make the wrong decision, we, we actually potentially can make the patient worse, especially if you're in a practice where you're not like, like you guys, where you're seeing folks maybe for thymectomies or other myasthenic-related surgeries, and you get a little more, have a little more frequency. For those of us that aren't doing that as often, and it's just the, the patient that happens to be scheduled to have their, their gallbladder out, and oh, by the way, they have myasthenia, that it, it really does make a, make a significant difference in how we, how we care for them. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I guess it's somewhat relevant, you know, with the with those patients is you obviously want them to be well controlled going into the operation. We're talking about thymectomy for because it helps with their post-op. I mean, it helps with their symptoms, and then often they can have 
you know, some tumors, some thymomas. But you, you know, you you don't want them in a crisis. Obviously, you want them well controlled. You want them to take their mesin on before the surgery and then continue that mesin on afterwards. So those are some of the things to avoid the complications on those folks as well. Sure. For our listeners that don't encounter this patient often, I wanted to just reinforce something that Drew said about Sugamidex over neostigmine in this setting. And it, it relates to the mechanism of action. Remember, peridostigmine and neostigmine are in the same class of medications. And so having a neuromuscular blockade antagonist reversal drug like Sugamidex, whose mechanism of action is independent of acetylcholinesterase inhibition, is, is very, very helpful. You can be fooled by these patients because even if they have a train of four count of four, I'll remind the listeners that you can still have up to 75% of your nicotinic acetylcholine receptors blocked. And that safety window, the margin for error in this patient is, is much, much smaller. So really vigilance is needed for this. I like, like all patients recommend using objective monitoring and sugamidex specifically in this case. I want to close with one final discussion on something that I, I view as a nice overlap between our specialties as well, and, and that is enhanced recovery protocols, ERAS, enhanced recovery after surgery. And it's something that you see a lot in the literature. I, I think that it's clearly attractive to both providers, clinicians, as well as administrators. If we can get people out safer with better outcomes and save money as a consequence of that, it's, it's something that's desirable to everybody. And Drew, I want to start with you just asking about some of the considerations you might have uh, when developing enhanced recovery protocols, ERS protocols, specifically as it relates to neuromuscular blockade management. You know, it's, it, I, I guess in my mind, ERAS, just like you said about Sigamidex, oh, it's new. You know, oh, gosh, ERAS is new. And clearly it's not. We've, you know, we've been doing ERAS type things for probably well over a decade, maybe in some centers more in the U.S. at least. Uh, I think we, underestimate how the protocol fits together in a very sort of eloquent way. And, and what I mean by that is it doesn't take much to completely derail the patient from a, a really um, good recovery, a good recovery profile. And the neuromuscular, residual neuromuscular blockade will absolutely derail a patient from the ability to sort of participate in what we would expect in the protocol, thinking about things like uh, early PO intake, early ambulation, appropriate pain control, et cetera. When, when a patient has some blurred vision, double vision, uh, perceived difficulty swallowing, maybe a little bit of weakness when we try to stand them up the first time, uh, that, that completely sets the patient back. And really, regardless of the, of the surgical specialty, some of those basic principles are going to apply almost universally with maybe some, some rare exceptions. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as anesthesia providers to realize a, a, a very small window of decision point intraoperatively can have days and or weeks of catastrophic outcomes for the patient in the, in the sense of what we would expect to be a really speedy, appropriate recovery. They lay in bed, they have, you know, the development of all the, all the side effects that, that happen with not, not early ambulation, et cetera. So this is a, this is an area for me that I'm quite passionate about because I've seen, I've seen it in the literature, but then seen in, in, in just everyday practice where that residual neuromuscular blockade, even if it's not fulminantly, uh, you know, the, the classic presentation, 
will absolutely derail the patient and and set them up for a uh, for a really long long recovery, much longer than than we would have expected otherwise. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about some of those tenets that you mentioned for this. And, and Ian, I wanted to pick your brain too while we've got you here about how, your approach to developing enhanced recovery protocols. Maybe it's surgical specific, or maybe it's just broadly how you approach these. Yeah, with a lot of our lung resection cases, specifically lung lobectomies, we're trying to get those stays down to one night, two nights. There's a lot of factors that go into it, as with you know a lot of other surgeries, I'm sure. But uh, Air leaks is one. Pain control is a big one. But I think, um, as Drew was alluding to, some of the neuromuscular ones are interesting. I, you had mentioned that urinary retention, for example, unless you are, if the patient develops urinary retention, has to have a Foley put in. We don't typically put Foley's in in our lobectomy patients. But if they have that Foley the following morning, then you have to give them that six hours to void again. And so so many decisions are made in the morning that if you have one little setback then that then that can sort of automatically delay them to the to the next day post up day two. The other thing obviously, if they get reintubated in the recovery area or maybe they're trying to you know have their first sip and they accidentally aspirate, then that's clearly going to knock things way back and so it's just some of those not not common, but uh, things that ra- you know raise the risk of some of those complications can uh, certainly Im- impact your ear- earlier discharge date, enhanced recovery. Yeah, I think that those things that you guys had mentioned that makes makes a lot of sense. You know, certainly getting reintubated is is going to set you back, but even some of the other stuff that we we may not appreciate as anesthesia providers, because I don't know that they were necessarily. You know, once my patients get extubated, I don't know that I'm looking at everybody's uh, chart really closely to see this post-operative course. So I appreciate that insight, Ian, that you have on following them uh, perhaps a little more longer uh, post-operatively. I wanted to close by thanking our our two guests today, uh, Dr. Makey and Dr. Drew Riddle here, to share with us their insight on, on neuromuscular blockade management as it relates to multidisciplinary approaches and development of ERAS and how we can improve outcomes. So thank you all for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us uh, and learned a lot. Yeah, likewise, appreciate it. CMEO programs always include SMART goals to help you translate information into action. SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. Our SMART goal for this program is to utilize evidence-based neuromuscular blockade reversal strategies to optimize postoperative recovery. Incorporate assessment for postoperative residual weakness into institutional ERAS protocols of appropriate reversal of neuromuscular blockade to avoid postoperative residual weakness and the resulting complications. And finally, to maintain an open line of communication between surgical and anesthesia teams to optimize surgical conditions and avoid postoperative residual weakness. All three podcast episodes, plus a wide variety of other educational activities and resources, can be found online at the CME Outfitters Virtual Education Hub. To receive continuing education credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Thank you to Dr. Drew Riddle and Dr. Ian Makey and all of our learners out there for joining us today. Be safe and take care.